I thought I would talk about the Four Noble Truths, because some of you may have been here for months and not heard uh, some of the core, core Buddhist teachings, and they're really uh, important to know. They're implicit in what we say and do here, but they're not always explicit. For some folks, for some practitioners, the Four Noble Truths are considered the core of the Buddha's outlook and practice. And in a sense, meditation is a means to realize for oneself the Four Noble Truths. Apparently this was one of the Buddha's first teaching, if not the first teaching after their awakening. They encountered uh, former companions and then gave this, gave this sermon. And it is the answer, the resolution of the Buddha's quest. The Buddha's question of, uh, is it possible not to suffer? And if it's possible not to suffer, how does one do that? How is that accomplished? And I think it's helpful to differentiate bourgeois dukkha from the deep existential dukkha or suffering that the Buddha was talking about. So we might want to reduce suffering, meaning, you know, if we can't get a vente latte, we want to be less upset about that and think, okay, I'm reducing suffering. But for the Buddha and in his worldview, it's like suffering just keeps going. You didn't get off until you got off. Uh, until you resolved your true nature, suffering would continue in perpetuity. So it wasn't, you know, a, a superficial question. It was a very profound question and quest for, for the Buddha. All I can offer you is a Zen perspective on the Four Noble Truths, because that's, that's my training. I do encourage you to check out some traditional Theravadan teachings on the Four Noble Truths. So the Four Noble Truths, sometimes called the Four Noble Observations, they are, they are presented as propositions with which to investigate and check out our own experience. Uh, the first is the presence of dukkha. And dukkha is the word that's often translated as suffering. Um, sometimes you see words such as stress or friction or dis-ease. Um, you may have heard that the etymology of the word dukkha is an axle that is not turning freely. There's, there's a sense of friction or bumpiness or, you know, the peg is not quite fitting the hole. So the first truth is the presence of dukkha. The second is that dukkha is caused by craving. It has a cause, its cause is craving. And the third truth is that it can be overcome. It can be undone because it's caused. It's not an ultimate reality. It can come apart. You can remove the pieces that have it function. And the fourth truth was that there are practices that can bring about the end of dukkha or there is a way of life that is the ending of dukkha, and that was explicated by the Buddha as the Eightfold Path. So the presence of dukkha is an observation of the human condition. 
And what do you see when you survey the human condition with a, a sober mind? Do you see people are suffering? Is that what's at the core of, of their lives? Fear and discontent, opposition? Is that pessimistic? We hear that most of us have confirmation bias. That is, what we believe, what we want to see, we tend to see, that we see selectively. So of all the data and all the available information, we will select what actually matches what we believe. So the presence of dukkha is saying that perhaps not everyone, but there is a pervasive dissatisfaction, grading, and agitation. People are not at peace. People are not at peace. Um, Buddhism does not have a concept of tabula rasa, like somehow the child is born into the world and it's like this pure, empty slate of peace and then it gets conditioned. Uh, we come into the world because we're suffering. Because we're ignorant, we're here to work that out, in a sense. So the observation of uh, dukkha. Sometimes I've heard Hogan Roshi say, in response to, Buddhism is kind of pessimistic, because I see a lot of joy and a lot of beauty and a lot of goodness in life and people who are enjoying their days. And um, he says, well, the Buddha didn't have to focus on what's working. You know? We, um, the teachings of Dharma are like a medicine. Where is the sickness? Here, here is some medicine for this particular sickness of suffering. In the Theravada tradition, uh, realizing the first noble truth is considered a level of insight. That is coming to direct experience and in a way acceptance of the pervasiveness of dukkha in our lives and in the world is a shift into a kind of spiritual maturity. It is a marker of a kind of sobriety. So, uh, you know, as we practice, um, sometimes we're surprised, especially in the beginning, the first few years, how much we discover as far as reactivity and clinging and patterns of the mind that cause friction. They were there before and operating, but we didn't really see them as clearly. But we start to see them as clearly, more clearly, that's the first noble truth being more, more realized. There are shades of dukkha we can, we can observe and name. And maybe it's helpful to name things because then they can kind of pop out more, bring them into more clear relief. So one shade of dukkha is a pervasive wish that things be otherwise. And that can manifest in avoidance or non-acceptance or a belief that something is missing. I think for me, some of these orientation towards life, they're so long practice that they become hidden. They, they're like a, a, a cataract on the eye and I don't look in the mirror so I don't see that I have that cataract anymore, but nonetheless my vision is affected. So just various stances towards 
experience can be a, a form of, of dukkha. Another, another shade of dukkha is resistance to loss and change. In one of the teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha, it says something like there's the suffering of what we love departing, what we don't love coming, losing what we want to keep, getting what we don't want to have, etc. Sometimes brings up the question, is it, is it natural to wish things that didn't change? Excuse me, is it natural to wish things didn't change? Isn't that, isn't that just profoundly human to have that, that desire? It's a good question. What does natural mean? Is what's instinctive to us or reflexive, does that make it natural? On the other hand, is it unnatural to accept change and loss and to not have prolonged pain over that loss and change? If somebody, let's say, lost a loved one and they were really at peace with that and, and had joy soon after, we might think they were strange. We might think something was wrong with them for not actually suffering because we have a cultural idea that um, if we care, we suffer over loss. So it's interesting, it's interesting to look at. Another shade of dukkha, and maybe a more uh, fundamental, is like a core uh, dissonance or a core split that happens accompanies belief and maintenance of a separate self. So all the energy that comes to maintaining an identity. I am this and not that. I'm not like them because I'm like this. And the stress of those thoughts and the separation that flows from that. The holding to solid ground where there, where there isn't solid ground. And, it, and in line with for the first noble truth is something we realize, we start to see in deep, deeper meditation how identity is, is created and caused and how separation is, is a gesture of perception or of the mind. So the second noble observation or truth is that dukkha has a cause and the proposition is that it's craving. Craving attachment. I think the word that's used is tanha. Tanha, sometimes translated as um, thirsting attachment or thirsting grasping. So it has a very a visceral, visceral feel. It's not just a fleeting desire, but it's something that is like tugging on the fibers of our body that really is, is core. So the second truth and the third truth bleed into each other. So the second is that um, cause of suffering is clinging. And the third is that the cause cannot be enacted. We can stop doing the doing of dukkha. We can interrupt it or we can discover a space that is not involved in that way of being.
in a way, that's actually quite, quite profound. The, the Buddha's teaching is, is incredibly optimistic, if you, if you think about it in the context of, of other traditions. There is the promise that suffering can be ended. Dukkha can be ended. It's possible for a human being to not have existential angst. It's like profoundly beautiful good news. It's a different, a different vision of the human condition. It's possible to not split off from life at all, to not separate. It's possible to be an openness that rejects nothing. It's possible to not live a life based around identity that is in opposition, in friction with circumstance. I think there's debate about whether this is a promise of unbroken emotional happiness or painlessness. You know, some presentations of what that would mean to be free from suffering are that someone is essentially just joyful all the time and does not, does not even get sad. We hear presentations like that, that the normal emotions do not even arise for such a person. And then I think more on the Zen side of things, we have a more human interpretation of what it means to be free from suffering that we feel, but that feeling uh, has its proper lifespan, that, we, that there's, there's not a dwelling. Maybe that it ribbons through, it moves through quickly. So the second and third truths are saying a deep freedom is possible when we face and really illuminate the nature of our friction. It's, we're, we're, we're turning the light to shine within. When, we, when we're observing the causes of suffering, we're observing them right here, right here. My own clinging to positions, views, my own clinging to outlook, to feeling states, to particular material circumstances. And we taste that it can be overcome. It can be ended, even in little, little bits. So, um, right now, many people are working with a lot of anxiety in their practice. And uh, it's not hard to understand why there's, there's a lot of anxiety, people losing their jobs, there's so much health concern. And it's hard to find f relief from suffering when we're in a full-blown panic attack or when we're in, a, you know, the real intensity of our anxiety. Those are the difficult times to realize it if we already haven't practiced it. But at the moments where, where the, the intensity of the suffering or the anxiety is, is lower, that's where we can see that this is true. Those, those smaller anxieties, the, the, the nervousness we have before we have a conversation with somebody, or the irritation we have about not having what we want to have on the dinner table. At those times, we can see how we cannot enact the causes of suffering. And then we know by extension, it's true there. It can be true here as well. It's just a difference in intensity of energy. So the possibility of really seeing all of our grasping as insubstantial and dreamlike, we, we can know that. There's some sense that we see that clinging and, and rigidly identifying is dysfunctional. 
It's, it's not embodying our deepest intelligence. It's, it's, it's not deeply respecting ourselves, this kind of relationship with life where we are enacting these habits of friction. The clinging and the rigid identification, it turns up the volume on the pain of living. It's not bad. It's not, it's not a moral judgment. It's just something we're doing that we don't have to do. Something we're doing that doesn't embody our Buddha nature. So the fourth truth, the Buddha taught the Eightfold Path. And apparently they said that it was a discovery, like an uncovering of something, a well-trodden path that was just covered over. So in a sense it's just a um, universal, universal way of orienting the human heart and mind. So the eighth, Eightfold Path is a way of living that is relief from dukkha, as I was just saying, it is relief, and it advances towards perhaps a more thorough uh, ending of dukkha. So the Eightfold Path, that's you know, a very thorough exploration, and there might even be eight talks necessary to go into it. The Zen tradition simplifies the Eightfold Path into three aspects. You say precepts, samadhi, and wisdom. And the precepts, we could say, are guidelines to minimize or to keep in check greed, anger, and indifference. Or prescriptions for living that keep us from the extremes of, of purity based on separation from life, moral high ground, on one hand, and then the other hand, self-indulgence and aggression, also based on separation. So, for example, we have precepts like, do not lie, but manifest the truth. Do not vent anger, feel it, but look into its source. Not only don't steal, but be proactive, give, give freely. So some say living the precepts are the whole point of the Buddhist path, that meditation and wisdom are in service of living in a way of non-harming. Some say the point of the precepts is basically to support samadhi and wisdom. That is, the clearer conscience we have, the lighter the heart, the simpler the mind, the easier it is to go deeper in our meditation. So these are uh, interesting contemplations. The Zen precepts are emphasized as not fixed rules, but lenses with which to look broad-mindedly at each situation or dilemma. Whenever we have fixed rules, we have a fixed perspective, we, we create dukkha, at least for others. And um, those of you who are familiar with the uh, fetters of um, practice, the Buddha said that, um, what is it? rites and rituals, fixed beliefs is one of the fetters to awakening. So we emphasize that kind of flexibility. So precepts and then samadhi and wisdom. And 
they can easily and appropriately be separated, but I thought it'd be interesting to bring in um, the sixth ancestor's perspective. Hui Neng, somebody, I think Hosen mentioned the sixth ancestor this morning. So that was on my mind. The sixth ancestor was really influential in the Zen tradition because he emphasized that samadhi and wisdom simply can't be separated. Concentration and insight, shamatha and vipassana, they can be separated, but he was emphasizing why separate them. And the metaphor he used was uh, it's like a lamp and it's light. Lamp is samadhi and the light is the wisdom aspect. So concentration and presence, samadhi, and seeing the true nature of experience being inseparable. So for example, as the mind is caught up in its stories and reactivity, which would be the absence of samadhi, then wisdom is, is prohibited, is, is murky, because we're seeing things through those thoughts and reacting to those thoughts and reacting to our reactions. So like a lamp and its light, so the lamp of awareness. We sometimes emphasize kind of one-pointed uh, concentration as a skillful means in order to uh, simplify and, and refine the mind. But the lamp of awareness, of wakefulness, was the term that we were using yesterday, wakefulness. And I'll mention again, I really like the term wakefulness because I feel it, it combines awareness and alertness in, in one, one term. So wakefulness that is freed from thought and clinging, or we might say that is free, its nature is to be free from thought and clinging. And wisdom, prajna, the light of that wakefulness is the nature of things as illuminated. Patterns are brought to light. In that stability, we can see the freedom that is impermanence. One of the things that um, Shito was emphasizing is um, don't, don't try to get rid of things in your mind, but really appreciate that they get rid of themselves. Really appreciate that we can, we can let we can let thoughts arise and dissolve. We can let feelings just move through. And it's the relating to them as something to be done away with that actually makes them stay longer or creates the, the friction. So with the stable mind and the, the light of that stable mind, we can see the transparency of the self that we can't quite find or pin down that thing that all the suffering revolves around. So the theory goes that with present, engaged, directly seeing awareness, wisdom, our actions, our way of being, is a way of not making dukkha, not amplifying pain. So the lamp and its light sees pain and challenge in ourselves and others, sees how pain and challenge are amplified through clinging, and that scene gives rise to empathy, very naturally. We see for ourselves that it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way for me, it doesn't have to be that way for others. 
and then a desire to not be a cause of dukkha for oneself or for other beings. And then the precepts are embodied. So you can see how uh, samadhi, precepts, and wisdom are one. One path of seeing and relieving dukkha. So in a sense, that's why in the Zen tradition it's emphasized that um, you know, zazen, and not just sitting here in a cushion, but that state of mind is really the whole practice. All of the, all of the teaching and all of the liberation are combined in that, that wakeful seeing and the relationship to experience and other people that tends to flow from that wakeful seeing. So let us please um, respect, respect ourselves and embody this truth, this way of, of not making pain where there doesn't have to be and seeing clearly the obstacles in our lives. Thank you.